We need to step back and take a broader view of healthcare, what we think we can do, what we can afford. But I'll tell you, over the next five years, this issue is not going to go away. And here they talk about what physicians are charging patients and in turn being reimbursed by insurance companies. You know, this is bang at the moon. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're back with Risk Management Monthly for March 2017. Time does march on, Rick. Uh, And we're going to start today, and I know everybody's sitting out there for a case and a decision and all that kind of stuff, but I have just gotten back from teaching at the ASEP uh, uh, Director's Academy in Dallas, Texas, and I had so many questions, Rick, uh, which were prompted by the SUMA situation in Akron, Ohio. Would it be okay if I took a few minutes and talked about some of the terms which no doctor understands when they sign those contracts. Absolutely, doctor. Uh, We're uh, looking forward to hearing about these four terms, uh, which uh, come up only when you're in trouble. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Let's talk for a minute about, I don't want to get into all the details of the SUMA question, uh, but we should all be aware that every major uh, throwaway journal in emergency medicine has a story on it, uh, ASEP, AAEM, SAEM, everybody and his uncle has taken an official position here, uh, mostly about protection of the residency programs and due process. But let's talk about a few things that are hidden in contracts, which no resident in emergency department, uh, me- emergency medicine understands when they're going looking for a job. So let me just take these four. Make sure we've had a discussion <clears throat> and, and uh, know what we're going to do. Now, if you're a practicing emergency physician and don't know about these, shame on you. If you're a guy who runs a department and has other people sign the contracts and they haven't been explained what these things mean and it's not reflected in the secondary contract, the physician contract with the group, you're immoral. You haven't done what you're supposed to do, which is let them know what they're signing on to. Let's take the first one, tortuous interference of contract. What does that mean? Tortuous, isn't that what, uh, isn't that kind of like a fracture of your wrist, a torturous uh, well, fracture? That, that, that is a form of torture, but it, it, it's not like waterboarding or anything. Tortuous interference means you have violated the usual and customary limitations of a contract relationship. It doesn't matter what the contract is about. If you are working, receiving money from someone, the law expects and convention expects you're going to try and act in their, in their, uh, to their benefit. You are going to act understanding a fiduciary responsibility to the owners. So let's just say as an example, you and three or four of your buddies have just gotten out of residency. You're now working for this group. And you say, you know, we could uh, get more money if we took the contract. Why don't we go behind the back of uh, 
this doc who owns the contract, go to the administrator and say, hey, Ralph, come here. Put your head down here for a second. If you uh, lose this contract, if you just dump this contract and then hire us, we'll form our own group. Uh, we'll we'll kick in even an extra fifty or a hundred thousand bucks a year into the hospital's uh, this account or that account. What do you say? What do you want to do? Uh, don't do that. That really is a violation of trust. You signed on board a contract with a group. If you want to take a contract, quit. Form your own group. Come back and compete for the contract, but don't do it. While you're receiving money from that group, that is tortuous interference of contract. And virtually every state recognizes that as a, as a business violation. Yeah, this has come up in the past uh, where groups of, where physicians have tried to go around the group and influence the uh, decision makers with regards to uh, the contract's coming up, uh, give this, uh, we'll form an internal group, give it to us, we'll get rid of these other guys, we'll do a better job, and we'll also contribute uh, $50,000 or $100,000 to your your kid's college education. That's a much f- more effective way to get a contract. Yeah, I understand it, but that's so blatantly <laughs> abnormal that, of course, we live in the age of blatant weirdness, so what can I say? All right, point number two. I want to talk about, for just a second, the uh, co-termination of privilege. Most hospitals in the United States, which have contracts with groups, demand as a part of the master contract that when the when the group loses the contract all physicians they brought in to the emergency department lose their privileges. The doctors sign off on that when they, when they sign up uh, for their hospital privileges. Now, why is this important? A number one, the hospital wants reasonable control of their situation. If they've gotten rid of the group, it's because of something that the group has done. And that usually means something that certain doctors have done. This is their way of looking over the group and saying, here's two or three people. We wouldn't mind staying with our next group. But you other two guys, we want you gone. You're a pain in the ass. You get a lot of patient complaints. The attendings don't like you, blah, 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 blah. So co-termination is virtually universal and... Uh, it needs to be reflected both in the uh, master contract and in the uh, uh, subservient contract with the physician. No physician should have co-termination that doesn't know that it exists. You know, uh, there have been instances in the past where physicians have said, the group is fired, but I still retain pr- privileges at this hospital to perform emergency medicine services, and I expect to be on that contract. Yeah, oh, no. I uh, I was involved in one of these many years ago. I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where there was not co-termination. Uh, that was not a part of people seeking privileges. Uh, and uh, so the main group gets kicked out. A new group gets uh, comes in. But the old guys hung around and would sit there, and if a patient came in 
that one of the older attendings wanted them to take care of, they would get it and not the new group. Can you imagine what a cluster, whatever it is, would happen when a code came in? When, when somebody with an airway problem, with somebody who needs a central line or a, or a chest tube, it became, it became horrific. So pretty much hospital administrators, this story has been told around the country. And they're smart enough that it, when you get a group, you get co-termination of privileges. That way folks ain't hanging around uh, claiming they have the right to practice emergency medicine in the department. You got it. Okay. <clears throat> Next, post-service restrictions. What does that mean? That means, okay, we've lost the contract, but and the group says to the hospital, you know, we recruited all these guys. Look at them. Smart, clean, neat. They don't smell bad or not too bad. Uh, and, and that's because we shaped them up. We trained them. We gave them everything. We recruited them. We paid the money. So they can't work here for the next six months. Okay. They got to go someplace else for the next six months. That's or hospital. You could buy down each of each of these people. You could buy up their contract and, uh, Maybe it cost us $50,000 to recruit them, train them, this, that, another thing. Just give us $50,000 a piece and they can stay here. But no 50000 they can't work here for the next six months. Uh, that is a powerful argument uh, for maintaining or keeping a group before you replace it. Okay. Next is, that's a, that's a post-service restriction. What about your service restrictions? Whenever a hospital has, is in some form of competition or believes they are with another healthcare system or hospital in the region, they don't want your doctors under your contract working for these other people. Now, uh, they don't care if you're going to uh, uh, Colorado uh, to do some work or here or there. But what they don't want is the team across town to have the same docs working for them. It'd be like uh, in Los Angeles playing quarterback for both UCLA and USC. Uh, and, you know, they don't play each other that often, maybe once a year. But the thought that everybody would know that it's the same players makes hospital administrators crazy, makes them go crazy. Now, what's reasonable uh, service restriction? Uh, probably uh, mileage may be mentioned within the next, within the uh, 25 miles or 30 miles. It may have to do with other groups, what type of groups they are, what the kind of work is. Uh, I was involved in this when our group uh, changed over many, many years ago, but they wanted to know what I did at the university because I'd staffed at the university for 10 years, actually 12 years, and uh, my current group wasn't, was okay with me seeing patients in the emergency department or teaching residents but they would not be okay if I participated in planning process for the university, 
uh, business activities, coding activities, that would be considered um, violating the competitive relationship at that point in time. So I think before a physician signs on board, he ought to know what the service restriction area, types of services, those sorts of things they can do, uh, which aren't, which need to be uh, delineated in contract. For example, was involved with one group that decided they would set up their own urgent care, independent and separate from the hospital. That is the kiss of death. Kiss of death. You could imagine how the how happy the hospital was about that. And they said, well, you know, when we're here at the emergency department, we work for the hospital. But our urgent care, oh, my God, the hospital administrators went nuts. They feel if they're giving you a base of operations in the community and they give you the opportunity to earn that kind of money, you should not be going out and competing with them on some level. I, I don't think that's unreasonable. We had a situation where the emergency group, in conjunction with the hospital, set up an urgent care center. The uh, urgent care center doctors and the uh, hospital got into a little pissing contest over something or other, and ultimately they had a split up. That split up cost the emergency group the group the contract at the hospital. The hospital basically said, uh, you are acting independently. You are now becoming a competitor. You guys are out. And that is basically how I acquired the contract at San Gabriel Hospital. Yeah, oh, oh exactly. I, I think that we have to do, if you have a, any business mind at all, what you recognize is there is a business component to this. Nobody in any emergency department, if you're a hospital employee, you're a hospital employee. You don't own anything. You don't own the emergency department. You don't own the right to show up there and work every day. You own nothing. If you're a contract group, what you have is you've been granted a time frame in which you may supply services and bill, but you don't own the hospital, you don't own their business management, and if you think you can't get in trouble on these deals, you just haven't been around enough. Here, you, you know, if you're in Colorado and do it, then I suppose you're smoking dope. If you're in the rest of the country, you're just not a business person. You don't understand it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and these situations are not all that rare. And if you think, if your group thinks that the medical staff is going to come to your rescue, that's another delusion. That just does not happen. When the group is removed by the, by the administration, they've generally picked up support by the board of trustees. They've generally picked up support by some of the key leaders of the hospital. So uh, the medical staff, although they may whine a, a little bit about your termination, you're still out, and the medical staff is not going to make a big effort to get you back. Yeah. By the way, the uh, in the SUMA situation, I, I'm not going to go through all the details here, uh, but the, someone was telling the story that, oh, my God, uh, these doctors got like 24 hours notice or three days notice that they'd be out. That's total crap. 
The group had been negotiating with this hospital for over nine months. Um, if the guys doing the negotiating weren't telling their docs, that's their problem. But these things don't happen out of the blue. Everybody knew what was going on. These were two, these were two groups of teenagers, intellectually, in, in hot rods, who are, you know, doing Thunder Road. They're playing chicken. They thought somebody would certainly give in or do this or that. Well, it didn't happen. And so, bang, somebody had to enforce what they said. Um, whenever you look into these details, you've got to look into all of them. Because the devil is in the details of why certain things happened or didn't happen. Greg, that's uh, that's pretty cool. I appreciate that, and I'm sure the folks at the Management Academy uh, um, appreciated your lucid explanation of these issues. Yeah, well, it's a subject <laughs> of which they're interested uh, because the last thing they want, uh, and believe me, nobody tells a resident any of these things. You get to ask these kinds of questions before you take a job. You get to see each one of these clauses that sits in the master contract. And I think that uh, I, I think that we sometimes need to pay a little bit more attention to business details than, than we do currently. Okay, listen, we've got a couple of articles that uh, I found that I thought would be interesting. Uh, this first one. Is from Becker's Hospital Review. You've heard of that, Greg. Yes, I have. This is a state-by-state breakdown of the number of lawsuits filed um, per 100,000 citizens. And this is from the uh, the 2015 National Practitioner Database. And uh, I think that it's kind of um, remarkable. Uh, The worst, I I don't think, honestly, that neither you nor I would be able to guess the top five worst states in the country in terms of the frequency of suits that they have. But I'm going to tell you what they are. Uh, 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 Rick, we're hanging with bated breath here. Tell us what the five worst are per suits per 100,000 population. Well, the worst is Louisiana. I wouldn't, know, I wouldn't guess that. 44.1 suits per 100,000 population. And that's really kind of out there because the next one down is Oklahoma with 36.3 and then Delaware with 35 and Wyoming, which I never thought any suits would be generated out of Wyoming for crying out loud. But on a per 100,000 patient basis, there, there are. And then the fifth one is another one, which is we would never guess, Tennessee. Can Tennessee. I- can I jump in here for one second? Rick? Please do. Here's the problem with the Becker Hospital Review discussion. It says how many pieces of paper are filed. You notice it doesn't tell you how many want were won or lost. You, you've got to remember, you're looking at certain states here, Wyoming, where they almost never find against the physician. It's very, very rare. So what we really want to know is the number of dollars lost per 100,000 people. The other thing we we on this broadcast want to know is, how often is it emergency medicine? There are some states 
where emergency medicine is pretty up there. If you go to other states, Wyoming being the example, emergency doctors don't get sued that much. I mean, there's more family practitioners, there's more OB people, but but I think that when we take a gross number, number of suits per 100,000 doesn't tell us what the loss is, doesn't tell us what the uh, aggravation is, and it certainly doesn't tell us what the uh, whether our specialty is is worse or better in that state. All right, listen, Doctor Jerry Hoffman, uh, yeah. uh, who who wants to go through the methodology and and all the nuances here and the yeah. p values and the relative ra- risk uh, uh, and odds ratios. Right, exactly. Right, right. The relative risk ratio here. Listen, what are the best states to work in? taking into consideration all of those irrelevant things you just brought up. <laughs> yes, okay. What are they, Rick? The best state to work in in terms of lawsuits is Hawaii. Uh, uh, now, I don't. I, for, I didn't write the number down here, but that's the best. Yes. Number two is, uh, is a state that uh, Mr. Trump seems to like a great deal, North Carolina. Yo, North very Carolina. Big. Very big. You would never guess number three. Georgia, mm-hmm. four, South Dakota, and five is in New Hampshire. Uh, these are the, where the suits per 100,000 are the least, acknowledging all of the uh, issues that you brought up so nicely. Uh, listen. Well, listen, having looked at this data for, for um, uh, emergency medicine, let me tell you that there is some consistency here because South Dakota – on everybody's list uh, has has almost no lawsuits. Certainly against emergency physicians, we have to leave the body in the hallway with the knife in it and our fingerprints on it to get sued. Uh, same way with New Hampshire. I think that there is some correlation here with emergency medicine, maybe not 100%. But, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to move to South Dakota, I think they'd love to have you. They're always in need of docs. By the way, what's very interesting is if you look at the Dartmouth Atlas as to where it's cheapest to take care of old people in this country, South Dakota is in the first two or three states. Minnesota is actually pretty good. South Dakota is pretty good. The worst is Florida. Uh, and we're not talking total monies, because total monies, Florida's unbelievable, because well, all they've got is old people. You know, Florida is, is God's waiting room. Uh, but the amount of money per person spent is less in South Dakota. And the joke is the, the male longevity, female longevity, and infant mortality are better in South Dakota than they are in most any other state. So there you go. Hey, listen, there are a couple of uh, things to, uh, to consider here. We've uh, stated this before. It's gotten really not too much to do with risk management, but in Minneapolis, it costs about $8,000 a year to care for a Medicare patient. In uh, There are there are three kind of nasty places. Uh, one of them is McAllen, Texas. McAllen, Texas is on the top of the list for all kinds of nasty stuff. The number I saw out of McAllen was uh, 12,000. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and uh, Fort Lauderdale's right up there too, and Miami. They're around twelve, thirteen thousand uh, dollars per Medicare patient per year. So this is an opportunity to say, what the heck are the people in Minneapolis doing that these other places uh, are are or are not? It it's, it's it just shows the huge opportunity there is to try to narrow variability and in the process save a, a ton of money. This is a cultural question. It has nothing to do with outcomes. Um, no, outcomes do, do, good. Do, does everybody need to have a 10th MRI uh, looking at their, uh, dec- you know, their grandmother's metastatic uh, carcinoma? The answer is no, they don't. And in South Dakota or in Minneapolis, they're pretty comfortable with not doing all that stuff. In Miami, it's like everybody expects it, but it has. They don't have any healthcare outcome differences, which would which would uh, justify that kind of variation. The variation's unbelievable. Right? You know, my mom is uh, ninety five. She uh, went to her cardiologist for a uh, checkup. She had a bypass many, 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 many years ago. And the cardiologist said, let's do a cardiac ultrasound. Looking for <laughs> what in a 95-year-old who's healthy and functioning every day? Well, the, the fact of the matter is, is that cardiac ultrasounds uh, were recently pointed out to be greatly, greatly uh, out of proportion to their value and need particularly on these recurring versions. Uh, so what are they going to find in my 95-year-old mother that they can do anything about? Um, before we leave this topic, I wanted to point out where Michigan stood compared to California. Yes, I, 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 <laughs> I knew you were going to shove this up my nose, right? The worst place to work is Louisiana, Um now, where does uh, where does uh, 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 let me let me see these numbers here? California came in nineteenth. Uh, um, I think I may have reversed that because California was a good place to work in terms of the numbers of suits, and Michigan was not a particularly good place to work with regard to the number of suits. Yes, Rick, uh, uh, state of Michigan has eighty three counties, uh, of which. One county <laughs> counts for about half the cases. That's Wayne County, where Detroit is. There you go again. You're trying to look at this in a scientific manner. You know, I'm. <laughs> you know, you're not helping here, doctor. You're not helping yeah. one one bit. Yeah. By the way, Rick, I I think that you did dig up an interesting paper that looks at the effects of caps on the non-economic awards in malpractice suits and the effects these caps have if any, on what providers charge and what insurance companies pay. The theory has been the same for 50 years. Uh, That is, caps are good and should result in lower charges (laughs) to the doctors, which means they'll charge less money to the patients. Rick, inform us. Is this true? Well, you just got to intuit that that's not true. Uh, Every time we've looked at the effect of malpractice reform and physician behavior, there is actually no connection whatsoever in terms of the ordering of tests. And here they talk about what 
physicians are charging patients and in turn being reimbursed by insurance companies. This is, there's just, you know, this is banging at the moon. Texas was probably the best example where they had these massive reforms with regards to malpractice. It did drive a ton of doctors to, te- to Texas. That was one of the uh, good things for sure. There was a period of time where they just could not process all the applications that were coming in. And it did increase the comfort level of the physicians to practice in Texas. So we can't say that it didn't have some good effects, but they're just not translatable into larger financial effects for either the system or the patients involved who are paying for this stuff eventually. So here's just another one to add to the pile that basically says you can do just about anything you want to the malpractice system, but until you abolish it completely, doctors will act as if it is it is the the suits are uh, you know, coming uh, hot and uh, fi- fast and furious, and patients are being awarded huge sums, and we got to practice defensive medicine, et cetera, et cetera. There's no changing doctors. This is just ground into their heads. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and the, the fact that the number of lawsuits, uh, medical malpractice lawsuits in Michigan, has gone down forty percent in the last five years, um, doesn't seem to change anybody's mind about see because the real question is not on did you lose money on this or that or get sued but they still use this ridiculous excuse that well i get this test or i do this or i keep them in the hospital two more days so i don't get sued there is no correlation between the number of tests done the number of days you stay in the hospital and whether you get sued on something. Although doctors really will will not admit necessarily that they're so blatant with regard to their behavior. We have learned and taught doctors over the years that this is how you do it. And it's very, very difficult to um, move off that. They, they get basically no reward for being frugal. All they do is assume increased risk and and nobody gives them a pat on the head until until the payers basically step in and create a system whereby the physicians do get some reward when they are frugal. Moving on, Gregory. Now, you've got another paper here which looks at the effect of restrictive scope of practice laws governing nurse practitioners and I'm assuming PAs on lawsuits involving physicians. Let us know about this, Rick. Well, the idea here is there's this big move to loosen, broaden the scope of practice laws, uh, regulations for nurse practitioners, where they can all they can work independently in some states and do not really require physician supervision. In other states, they can re- work pretty much independently, except. All of their prescriptions have to be monitored by a, a physician. And then there's the states where they are closely monitored in uh, all aspects of their care. So this paper says, listen, what happens if we restrict scope of practice, uh, uh, what these folks can do? And uh, what effect does that have on uh, potential lawsuits? And this applies in emergency medicine because... 
hospitals and emergency department physicians can have some say about the scope of practice about these folks, independent of what the state regulations are. They have the ability in the emergency department to set up what the scope of practice uh, of these folks may be. And and what they're suggesting here is if you have a narrow scope of practice where you are monitoring them very, very carefully, that process is going to more likely result in physicians being named in these suits. (coughs) If you have a loose scope of practice where they're allowed to do a lot of stuff on their own without physician supervision, as you may intuit, physicians are less likely to be named in suits. Now, the fact of the matter is is that in emergency departments, the physician's going to be named, the NP is going to be named, the hospital is going to be named. But the idea is here that if the nurse practitioners have wide latitude about what they can do without supervision, it's much more difficult to say, doctor, you did, you were not paying attention here, you were responsible, those kinds of things, when in fact, if they had narrow restrictions, it really increases the risk of physicians being dragged in and successfully uh, uh, named in, the, in these suits. God, I, I, I hate the fact that I've become Jerry Hoffman for a day, but uh, when we look at some of these things, Rick, we've got to remember that there are multiple things happening at the same time. There are the medical malpractice restriction rules and regs uh, going against or countercurrent to this. So it's not a simple question who's going to get sued and who isn't. The other thing is oversight uh, at a distance. Does it really make any difference if a doctor looks at a nurse practitioner's charts from two weeks ago, and he picks a certain number of charts to look at over a month? Does that actually change the health care in any way, shape, or form? Uh, I, okay, I'm going to go on my one-minute rant and tell you this. The single largest question we have not yet answered in emergency medicine is how much supervision is necessary for advanced uh, practice clinicians in our departments. The reason is very simple. As this becomes more and more a corporate practice, why not hire all uh, PAs or NPs for the department with perhaps one physician who can check in on the cases. That would help lower the healthcare cost at least a little bit. Um, ASEP has yet to take a, a position on this. And the reason is uh, we don't know what to say or what to do because the implications for our training programs and payment and these sorts of things are absolutely frightening, Rick. Well, this is an a, a horse that is out of the barn, sir. I yes. mean, well, you know, the train has left the about, station. Yes. Well, I'm. Uh, I've just gotten back from being a professor in Saudi Arabia, and uh, there they they do use the the term "camel's nose under the tent." I I promise you that. And uh, this. We we need to step back and take a broader view of healthcare, what we think we can do, what we can afford. But I'll tell you, over the next five years, 
this issue is not going to go away. What, and for supervision, if you get paid for supervision, what are you being paid for? See, we haven't answered that question yet. You know, oh, I supervise five nurse practitioners in clinics. How? I mean, what do we think is optimal supervision to actually provide some benefit in the healthcare system? See, we're very good at dividing up money. We're no good at asking, did that money buy us anything with regard to health care? And, you know, I, I think it's uh, something that's not going to go away. Well, listen, you were in Saudi Arabia, and I was in New Orleans. <clears throat> I was at the Emergency Department Benchmark Alliance uh, meeting, where we had about 200 folks who are the managers of emergency departments. They were nurse managers and physician managers there. And it was kind of interesting because with regard to the use of uh, PAs or NPs, uh, I asked the question, how many of you have more than one PA or NP assigned to to a physician? And only a few hands went up in the audience, which is kind of like surprising because it seems that the evolution of this process is to have more than one, you know, NP or PA in the de- in the department. I mean, the idea of having one and then maybe two physicians doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, especially when you have to realize that eighty percent of patients go home. A lot of the stuff that people come in for are self-limiting issues. Doesn't matter if that ankle sprain is seen by a PRA or NP or a physician, it's going to get better whenever it really wants to get better, no matter what the heck you do. You can put a wrap on it. You can put this or that on it. It's going to get better on its own. Same with all these respiratory infections. And so the idea of what is the most efficient way to see these folks, it it seems to me that, and I think that some of the physicians you and I both know, Greg, have more than one NP or PA working with them, and uh, I think that that would be a particularly effective way to increase the productivity of a a medical team. Well, I will tell you, people are looking at this productivity question. Um, Five years ago, if we asked the question down at the um, director's academy, how many people here are working with scribes? In that room of 100 people, maybe there'd be seven, eight hands. Uh, We asked that question again this year. More than half the room are working with scribes. Um, I honestly think that you can increase physician productivity by asking a simple question. What does a doc actually need to do? And what can be done by, by somebody who wants to go to med school and is willing to take 12 bucks an hour? Uh, which is what the scribe system runs on. Well, even if it's even if it's twenty dollars an hour, which is more customary when you have uh, hired a scribe company to provide your scribes, correct? Or, or maybe a, even a, a tad more. Uh, I saw a a um, study that looked at what is the return on investment of scribes, and basically uh, the 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 increase in billing. And billing was something in the neighborhood of $90 an hour. They cost uh, $20 an hour. So the 
net billing increase was uh, $70. And if you collect 40% of your charges, then you're ahead $28 an, an hour. Uh, and if you look at it from that point of view, it's like you got to be nuts not to hire a scribe. And scribes are not only about documentation, because if anything, electronic medical records has limited their ability to do uh, documentation. Uh, they're not allowed to put in any orders, etc. the things that they may have been doing in the past. And so I think that that they're, I think they're doing less charting relating to histories and physicals, but they're still facilitating physician work. They're still making it, uh, and I think this is a really important aspect of scribes, the ability to not to to be able to work a 30-year career. The, the fact that they're able there to help you put up your lab, get your lab, the x-rays are up on the screen, Doc. Um, they are just acting as personal assistants. One other thing, Greg, I saw a paper recently where they talked about people who were trained to look into the uh, electronic medical record it, when there's a, a regional approach where there's a health health exchange record that has everything in it from all of the all of the doctors visits the hospitalizations etc and they had people who were facile at distilling this information and basically shadowing emergency physicians and providing them with, well, you know, this patient did have a CAT scan on the last visit, and it was normal. Or they, their, their, their carne CTPA was done six months ago, did it, did it, did it. The, these people wound up decreasing lab work something by about 55% and imaging by about 30%, Greg, which is, these numbers are unbelievable. But this is um, um, what the potential is. If you have all of this data, physicians don't have time to look this up. But if somebody looked it up for you and basically you were knowledgeable and presented it to you, this may be an extension of what scribes can do. So um, uh, because they they are becoming very knowledgeable <laughs> regarding medicine. I, yeah, I don't think there's any question about the fact that that if we look across the United States, tradition is in the East, innovation is in the West. There are more states, you know, west of the Mississippi, where nurse practitioners have sort of an open field of practice, independent writing of prescriptions, very, uh, much less supervision. I think uh, over the years, we're going to see the, all the old views of who is a practitioner, what do practitioners do, it's going to change. Uh, you and I know that we've spoken <clears throat> in the last four years, five years, to uh, over 14,000 uh, PAs and NPs at the emergency medicine boot camp course. Now that's got to have, and these are young people, in general, they're young. This has to have an effect on the workforces of the United States, particularly in emergency medicine. We've also had an increase to now two, 217 residency programs. Uh, you and I remember when there was five. You were at UCLA. No, 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 no. don't uh, say USC. that. USC. Yeah, USC. please, big yeah, difference. You were at USC. In fact, you and I were just there last month. Uh, but that residency program was one of five in the country at that moment in time. 
So uh, really, anybody who says we're not moving to, to having better trained people um, in, this, in this arena, they haven't been looking at the data. They're just not watching what's going on. Although I think we're starting to work <laughs> smarter. Uh, the only thing that is against the trend to work smarter is encumbering physicians in front of these computers. Uh, that is d- working dumber, uh, but uh, we are making some headway in other other areas. Yeah. So some of that's getting better. All right, so let's get another topic here. Our friend Chuck, Chuck Pilcher, what's he up to these days, Rick? Well, you know, Chuck produces uh, the Medical Malpractice Bulletin, and you'll see in your notes the... Um, URL to get onto that. It's free. It's been going on for a long, long, long time. And he basically, in this bulletin, summarizes uh, information that relates to uh, emergency medicine malpractice. And it's really, it's quite good. We've uh, interviewed Chuck. He was on the show a few few months ago. And one of the things, he did give us some permission, I believe. Chuck, is that yes, is that correct did. or not? He did. To go there and periodically kind of pick out a few items to disseminate uh, on our show. And um, I went there and looked at the, the February issue, and he uh, referred to a paper by a, a guy. Is this, this person you know, Greg? No, oh, he's a personal friend. In fact, he and I... Uh, we're on the same stage together in uh, London, England. Uh, we've been at four or five major programs around the country. And this is Pat uh, Crosscarry, who <clears> – <throat> Pat's, I, I believe, a Canadian. But um, Pat is the leading voice in discussing how physicians actually make decisions and what are the things which get in our way of uh, – intelligent data processing. Yeah. Pat is excellent. He wrote a paper called The Importance of Cognitive Errors in in Diagnosis and Strategies to Minimize Them. And this was published in August of 2003, 2003, but I think it is a classic. It is a classic. So in the uh, Chuck's bulletin, he goes through some of the... the, uh, sources of bias that uh, your friend talks about. But when I actually went into the other, into the original article, there was a probably 30 sources of bias. And when I started reading them, each one of them rang true to me as a, a way that doctors screw up because of um, improper processing of information. And oh, well, I think that you and I now having lived a long time in medicine realize that uh, sometimes making a correct diagnosis or an incorrect diagnosis is not based on just your knowledge base, but on the way it's presented, the the 10 other things you're doing at that moment in time. Cross-carry is a firm believer there's no such thing as multitasking. <laughs> you make your mistakes. Uh, you know, you only do things one at a time. Now, you may do a lot of them. But uh, this idea that we can do all things all the time, all right, it's just plain wrong. And the systems ought to prevent us from doing that. So what we thought we would do is, I don't want to bore you with 30 uh, of these sources of bias, but what we thought we would do is we would just bore you a little bit by doing uh, maybe uh, 
a handful of these uh, for the next uh, uh, two or three years. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's got a ton of them. In any yeah. case, the point I wanted to make is diagnosis is everything in emergency medicine. If you got the diagnosis correct, you can look up in a book how to treat it for crying out. You know, a book is a, a, a thing with paper where you have pages in it. You might yeah. be familiar yeah, with right. that, Greg. We, we have plenty of listeners but, who have never opened a book. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the fact of the matter is, is it's all about diagnosis. Treatment is like a no-brainer, really, once you've made the diagnosis. And so this is all about cognitive errors that are associated with screwing up your diagnosis. You want to go through a couple of these, Greg? Yeah, yeah, we really should. And again, uh, a tip of the uh, cap to Pat, who uh, who really uh, forced us, more than anybody I can think of, to say, yeah, that's probably why we did screw up on this case or that case. And let's get back to to a basic fact. We still think that about half, maybe a little more than half of the malpractice cases in emergency medicine have to do with a missed diagnosis or delayed diagnosis or, or failure to act when, when it was evident that we needed to act. That's where the malpractice cases are. Although I think the failure to act is really way down the list. I think it, I really think the vast majority of this is about fair to diagnose. And so this is about asking physicians to be aware of their sources of bias. He also, in this excellent paper, I really think that, um, and we're going to put down in the notes the URL for this paper because it's free since it's uh, 15 or 14 years old. They've made it uh, available to all of us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. You know, I think it's really, really worth worth getting, particularly those of you who are teachers in academia, getting to, to get residents uh, straightened out here. The other thing is that he not only did, and these are alphabetically listed, like the, the ones he has first begin with A. Uh, yes, I know that. The, but he also had a whole list, much shorter, of things that physicians ought to do to counter the many sources of bias that we have. Uh, so let's let's go through a couple of these. we get to start with our favorites? Because, see, this is like sitting around drinking and saying, what's your favorite deadly sin? Um, I, so I want to talk about my favorite biases. I know you're going to go right to number two. I am. Rick, it's my favorite, and that is the anchoring bias. Uh, when we're given certain bits of salient information, once you've started down that pathway, it's very tough to go anywhere else because you're looking for those things that support your diagnosis, and you're ignoring those things that don't. Anchoring bias happens to all of us. It's a 16-year-old boy. He comes in. He's had four hours of increasing right lower quadrant pain and vomiting. To me, he's got a, he's got appendicitis. I, got a, I think he's got a testicular torsion here, doctor. Well, he may, <laughs> but the point is my bias at that moment in time, Rick, and I know I fall into this. I'm a bad boy. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking for things that support me. And, and, uh, and uh, I don't know. Don't you think that we all, when we hear the first five or six words, we're moving down a direction. 
There's no question about it. And we're going to be right 98% of the time. But yeah, you can't be wrong 2% of the time in our business. That's but, the problem. And that's the whole issue here is that most of the time you're right. And uh, But if you don't consider other causes, you will not make that diagnosis and you will, make an er and you will be an error. I wanted to do the first one, Greg. It's called aggregate bias. Okay. I think that this, I've not heard this one before, but I think this is pretty good. When physicians believe that aggregated data, such as those used to develop clinical practice guidelines, do not apply to individual patients, they are involving uh, what is called uh, aggregate fallacy. The belief that their patients are atypical or somehow exceptional may lead to errors of uh, commission, ordering x-rays or other tests, when guidelines indicate none are, in, uh, are required. My patient is special, doesn't fall within the guidelines. I don't need to watch, listen to guidelines. I don't need to read guidelines. I'm going to do it my own way. But in fact, aggregation of data and information to develop good guidelines uh, are, are it's kind of like a no-brainer. And one of the things that I, we had a, at this benchmarking alliance, I gave a talk on uh, variation, physician variation in, in practice. There are four, at least four papers in the emergency medicine database that looks at physician behavior in the evaluation of suspected pulmonary embolisms. And, uh, you know, the idea here is you clinically stratify them, low intermediate or high risk based on gestalt or using the Wells criteria or Geneva criteria or whatever. So you stratify them first. Low risk, they get a D-dimer. D-dimer is negative, they go home. D-dimer is positive, they get some kind of imaging study, whether it be a scan or a CT pulmonary angiogram. That's the, that's the, uh, those are the guidelines. I think they're really quite defendable. And these four papers, Greg, showed, one paper showed 35% of the of the imaging that was done was inappropriate. These doctors would basically go right from doing a history and physical right to a CT pulmonary angiogram, even in that low-risk case. They'd skip the D-dimer altogether. It was like, and, and a third of the cases, Greg, the D-dimer was negative, and they still did a CT yeah, pulmonary yeah, angiogram. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, I, it's like un. Believable, unbelievable, and this. Well, I, but this is true with a lot of our stuff. For example, uh, we had a twelve-year-old came into the department. That was it was a few years back. As I'm looking at the data, a uh, twelve-year-old came in from who'd been on a bike accident and hit his head. Not knocked unconscious, but you know had a small abrasion, that sort of thing. He got a CT scan of the head. Now. Part of that may be the fact that he was the son of a hospital administrator. Absolutely. I don't know whether, I, I don't know whether that's the reason or not. I wouldn't have done it. So we started to look back on who orders and who doesn't. There was a five-fold difference in the ordering of CT scans, five times as many by some emergency docs as others with regard to uh, headache, uh mild uh, trauma to the head, that sort of thing, five times. So if you're talking about expense to the system, why? What are we doing here when it doesn't change the diagnosis of real disease? Well, you know, in my talk on variation, <laughs> I uh, concluded that for the emergency department director to take this on 
is the third rail of uh, uh, which will get you electrocuted because your doctors are not particularly interested in being compared to their peers with regards to utilization, throughput, patient satisfaction, you name it. They, they're not interested in this. Yet, the fact of the matter is, is that every study that has looked at variation in physician behavior has shown huge, huge, huge variation in the utilization. And, and one of the series of papers that people do all the time is mild blunt head, head trauma and CT scans because CT scans emit radiation and CT scans are expensive. But you could also look at you know urine cultures, wound cultures, all of these things which are less dramatic and you'll still see the same variation. Uh, it, and it is exactly as you said. Um, Al Sacchetti has a paper going out that's going to get published where you look at six, every hospital in the state of New Jersey uh, and he, there were 68 of them, and he looked at the rate of doing CTs for discharged patients with head trauma. The assumption is that if you're sent home from the hospital when you're up bumping the head, it's like a no big deal. And the variation in the use of CTs was astronomical, easily five and six-fold from the hospital that did it the freak, least frequent to the hospital that did it the most frequent. And nobody is willing to take this on. Nobody is willing to do it because it's dangerous stuff, because the doctors are going to say, well, you know, who said these guidelines are any good? Or my patients are different than, than yours. Or I get the sicker patients. Or I get sued once. Or this is the way I was taught to do yeah, it. Yeah, all crap. This whole right. litany of bullshit excuses <laughs> Um, and there's no other business, Greg, that I know of that does not look at variation at, or certainly would tolerate this degree of variation. But doctors are not interested. Medical directors, if you approach this, you're going to get a lot of pushback, a lot of pushback. But it, it is so gross. I, I, you know, I get an agita. I'm getting agita here, Greg. You know, yeah, I, I, I understand you are, Rick. Uh, yeah, well, you want to do avail- availability bias? We're, we're still in the A's. Yes, yes, we, we, we are. Go ahead. Give it to us. The disposition to judge things as being more likely or, or frequently occurring if they readily come to mind. <laughs> you <Yes>. know? <laughs> hey, I think of that a lot. So that must mean that it occurs a lot. You know? Well, that may, may or may not be true. Recent experience with the disease may inflate the likelihood of you thinking about it. And that, that's so true. One of our doctors, out of the blue, made the diagnosis of um, benign intracranial hypertension in a, in a chubby uh, adolescent female. God forbid, because every person thereafter was likely to have, who had a headache, was thought to have this diagnosis. Did she, by the way, have uh, a... Uh blurring of her of her discs because you know this is an area of my interest physicians have stopped doing physical exams if you look at people who have symptomatic benign intracranial hypertension at about the 95 percent level they've lost uh their venous pulsations in their discs venous pulsations what the what the I don't want to get into this, but the problem also is we've stopped doing anything that is at least minor, uh, requiring some talent, and expect to replace it with a test. Well, in any case, do that. 
he made this once in a lifetime diagnosis and the next 20 people came in i wonder if it's uh, this diagnosis which yes, is extraordinarily yes, exactly. rare and exactly. you 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 know that yourself i mean you've experienced that yourself i'm we all have that's partially why we go to continuing medical education because it reminds us that there are other things out there not everything in the chest is is uh, angina and sometimes we need to be reminded of that uh, uh, a few times. By the way, availability <clears throat> is, can be taken two ways. And I've heard Pat comment on this. Availability is not only of how close it is to our brain, but what we have available to us. Uh, the old line uh, to the man who owns <clears throat> a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if you own a CT machine, that's what you get, even if it's the inappropriate test. Sometimes we're driven toward those things which are available to us easily, and instead of transferring the patient or getting what we need done, we're willing to accept a lower-level test and not get what the patient needs. You know, he also uh, conversely mentioned that if a disease has not been seen for a long time, Parens is less available. It may be underdiagnosed because you know it's a rare condition. I haven't I haven't seen it. It's not in your head in the differential because it's it's unavailable to your brain. Yes, it's not that you haven't seen the disease. You just haven't diagnosed it. I mean, it may have come in several times, and uh, and uh, we need to we need to think about that. Ascertainment bias, Greg, well, let's just get the last of these uh, four here, yeah, occurs yeah. when a physician's thinking is shaped by prior expectations, stereotyping, and gender bias are both good examples. When you talk about gender bias, and uh, we, we see a woman come in with um, chest pain. atypical chest pain, exactly, they say, well, you know, she's 45, what's the likelihood of this being coronary? It's really pretty small. You know, um, and in fact, her symptoms were really pretty atypical. I really don't think we need to go down that path. Yeah, but yeah, if well, that that's true for you and I because we came up in the era when chest pain and angina was considered to be a male uh, disease. But all the current literature says that's not right. The difference between men and women may be 60, 40, something like that, but certainly not enough to rule out uh, heart disease. If, if you would have diagnosed or gone after heart disease in a man, you should be going after it in a woman with the same uh, symptoms. You know, they also talk about, um, and this has been written up a lot in the literature, that women who uh, are having what may be thought to be coronary symptoms don't get worked up to the degree that men do. They get less coronary angiograms. They get less coronary CTPAs. They get less... less um, Stenting, they get less of everything that uh, that men get. Now, to be candid, that may be a good thing <laughs> in the in the long run well, because well, we overdo a lot of stuff. The, we overdo a lot of stuff. But the other side of that is, if you look at women who have had a STEMI, they actually do uh, slightly worse over the next sixty to ninety days than men who've had a STEMI. So it may be a an actually a more lethal disease in women than it is in men. 
How about the base rate neglect? Now, I'm going to summarize this quickly here. Uh, in some cases, clinicians may consciously or otherwise deliberately inflate the likelihood of disease, such as in, strata, uh, in the strategy of rule out worst case scenario, worst yes. first. So <laughs> uh, th- this is, um, we are worst first, we are worst first doctors, that's for sure. And so maybe maybe in emergency medicine, we should not have our hands slapped for this too much, although worst first always means that you're going to over-evaluate, over-test, over-do uh, everything because we're looking for the worst first when, in fact, worst is less pretty infrequent. Yep, yep, it really is. Um, but, but uh, again... Emergency physicians are frequently involved in a most difficult situation. Whenever you have to make a decision on a less than complete database, I think we tend to err toward um, thinking it's bad as opposed to good. Commission bias is the tendency toward action rather than inaction. Don't just do something, stand there. Right. Exactly. Um, it is more likely in overconfident physicians. Commission bias is less common than omission bias. So it's a tendency toward action rather than uh, inaction. And this is a bias. The fact of the matter is, is that in emergency medicine, we often need to observe, uh, re-examine, uh, it, it, and a lot of times we overdo things. All of these kids who have some mild dehydration are getting IVs started when, in fact, the sippy diet is what is recommended by everybody in authority. But no, we start IVs. Right. Everybody in the world does does uh, diet except us. So um, this is no commission bias where we're overdoing things. Uh, we're committing in the in the sense of the commission bias. Well, listen, uh, I, I hope that all of our listeners appreciate uh, Pat uh, Crosscarry's uh, analysis of why we're making mistakes. We will present some more of this over the next uh, five or six months or so, because I think it is worth talking about, uh, because in the final analysis, we get sued by coming up with the wrong diagnosis uh, at least half the time. Uh, that's the cause, and we probably ought to talk about it. Uh, you ready for a wine of the month, Rick? Hey, listen, no cases from you this year, or well, this month, or I, I, I've all right, okay, cases, but okay, but I, I think all right, we've all right. Exhausted these poor people. Uh, let me. Let if me we've not exhausted that, them, them we've exhausted you. That's well, for sure. That's for you're, you're old now. Sure. I understand. I'm older. Uh, Jack's uh, Vineyards, uh, J A X Vineyards. Uh, which is in Napa. Uh, we're not worthy, the greatest uh, county in California for wines. And here's what doesn't go together. Here, here's, uh, here, here's a dysfunctional uh, facts. They have two wines that are considered pretty good for under $20 a bottle. Oh, my God. And if you buy them at Costco, even less than that. Jack's Vineyard's the 2014 Chardonnay Y3 and the Sauvignon Blanc, the 2015 Sauvignon Blanc, Napa County, Jack's Vineyards, uh, 
wonderful wine, uh, 18 bucks a bottle or 17 bucks a bottle. You know what? Uh, this America, what a wonderful place. I mean, we can give it fabulous wine for a reasonable price. And if you buy it at Costco, it's even cheaper. There you go. Uh, listen, uh, you are packing your suitcases to go to Key West. I am indeed, I, I sir. Gotta, I got to throw a little plug in here now, Chief. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to Key West with yes. Billy Mallon and Jan, Jan um, Schoenberger. Yeah, and I, I'm I don't, don't Kevin Clower, I think. Oh yeah, 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 Kevin, and you're going to have a great time down there. That is one of my absolute favorite courses to go to. And this year, I'm just you Every know, I, 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 I mean, I, how can you beat Key West? I have been squeezed out. <laughs> I have been squeezed out of my own courses. But in any case, you're going to have a grand time down there. Uh, we did our first course about. Mm, two weeks ago, 10 days ago in uh, Kona. Kona turned out to be absolutely terrific. I know it's not kind of like, you, you, you know, in the people think Maui is the place to go. Well, I tell you, we've been to Maui a bajillion times. This Kona place was really, really nice. And we had great weather and uh, we had uh, a nice beach and it's not crowded. You know, like the road to Kanapali, for crying out loud, it's like uh, you might as well be on uh, the uh, the, the sand- or freeway. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> At 5 o'clock, for crying out loud. That's what it's like over there. Yeah. <clears throat> but in any case, have a great time. I'm headed to Cancun in a week. Oh. I haven't, we haven't been there for decades, decades, decades. But in any case, that's what's happening. By the time you get this, uh, this all of these things will have transpired. But in any case... Just had to tell you about them. Please take a look at our courses, ccme.org. And Gregory, I think that that's it for March 2017. Thanks for being with me. Uh, we'll talk with you. Well, I'll probably talk with you before a month from now. But in any case, risk management, I think, coming to a close. Bye-bye. <laughs>